Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Brian Amaral, in for Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Rhode Island is home to the first offshore wind farm in the U.S., and more are planned for this part of the country. What can we expect from this industry in the next 10 to 20 years? Here to give us some perspective is David Hardy, the CEO of Orsted North America, the company behind Rhode Island's next offshore wind farm and potentially more to come. I'll be interviewing him today with Lisa Gralnick, the host of Future of XYZ on Rhode Island PBS. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with David Hardy, Group Executive Vice President and CEO of the Americas for Orsted, and Lisa Gralnick, the host of Future of XYZ. Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks. Lisa, do you want to ask the first question? Sure. First and foremost, what is offshore wind? Yeah, offshore wind is big wind energy, wind turbines that are built offshore, today primarily fixed to the bottom of the sea. Uh, but in the future, potentially on floating platforms as well. And the first offshore wind farm was built by Orsted about 31 years ago in 1991, 32 years wow. ago. The first U.S. wind farm was built about a little over five years ago here in Rhode Island, the Block Island wind farm. What is it about Rhode Island that made it so appealing and interesting as the first project in America is for, for offshore wind? The Block Island Wind Farm was actually developed by Deepwater Wind, which we acquired. And so the leadership team that made those you know, decisions to start in Block Island, they saw a specific need where the island itself wasn't connected to the grid onshore. And they were bringing diesel out to the island every day and running five big diesel generators to power the island. And so if you're going to do a pilot of a small offshore wind farm, the economic benefit of getting off of diesel and also connecting back to, to the grid, they got internet, high-speed internet access, and they got backfeed power. So when the wind's not blowing, the power now flows back from the mainland. And when the wind is blowing, they actually power more than the island. The, the electrons flow through that that cable back to the mainland. And the Block Island Wind Farm actually powers mainland Rhode Island. And so it was just a good place to, to start and they had support from the state, et cetera. And so it really showed Rhode Island could be a, 
a leader in this in this uh, innovative space. So. And then there's another one that you guys are pulling up that should be online in just a couple of years. Yes, so it's called the Revolution Wind Project. It's um, quite a bit larger. The Block Island Wind Project is 30 megawatts. So if you don't speak energy, just think 30. Revolution is 704 megawatts. So it's significantly larger. And we'll power 400 megawatts in Rhode Island and 300 plus megawatts into Connecticut through the same grid. And we have been working on the development of this project since the late teens, probably 17, 18, um, and just got our final uh, environmental impact study from the federal government. So it's the second to last step in getting our federal permit. And we expect to get our record of decision, which is the final federal permit in the next month or two, and then go to our board get permission to spend the rest of the money needed to build the project and start construction later this year. Assuming that happens, what difference is that going to make in the life of an everyday Rhode Islander? Well, the total number of households, approximate number of households that that wind farm will power is around 350,000 households. So 350,000 households across Connecticut and Rhode Island will now have 100% clean energy. At the time, people thought that maybe Revolution was a high price option, but if you compare the peak prices that were paid last winter to the long-term levelized price of Revolution Wind, it's actually significantly cheaper. And that's today, and this is a 30 to 35-year asset. So it might actually be really inexpensive to have offshore wind. As you know, Rhode Island recently opened up a request for proposals to get a new offshore wind power project. And, and just recently, Rhode Island Energy announced that it wasn't going to move forward with Orsted and Eversource's proposal. What was your reaction to that decision? Was that disappointing that your proposal didn't get picked? Very disappointing. I mean, we we spent a lot of a lot of time uh, preparing our, our our proposal. At the time, we didn't know we would be the only bidder. We saw it as a as a competitive tender, and we we really tried to put our best foot forward, both with a competitive price, but also with a a good state economic benefits package. So we were, we were quite disappointed to hear that they decided not to move forward. Do you agree with that assessment that it didn't really comply with the cost requirements in the law? Like cost to consumers, it, you know, I think they were saying that it would have cost customers too much. Yeah, I mean, that's their position. I think it's difficult to know what is a high price for electricity. You can compare maybe what people have paid for electricity in the past or what people think electricity is going to cost us in the future. But how do you compare the price of flooding in Vermont or smoke that we're all inhaling from fires in Canada or record heat in Arizona? So who's to say if the price was too high or not? I think Orsted can probably build and procure and construct offshore wind cheaper than anybody else. And so we think it was a competitive a competitive price. But um, yeah, we're, we're in discussion about how people interpret that. So, uh, you know, what do, what do you think it overall says? Not not just that they decided not to move forward with it, but that you were the only bidder on this. What do you think it says about the overall the challenges of the offshore wind power industry right now and some of the headwinds? You know, uh, offshore wind, like I said, we were 30 years behind Europe. Uh, they've had a lot of time to build a supply chain, build service capabilities, train people, et cetera. And they've been able to get the price of offshore wind pretty competitive. There's no subsidies, and it's pretty much grid price for them. Their grid price is a little higher than ours because our natural gas price is, is lower, but pretty reasonable cost of energy for for Europe. And this is what prompted the U.S. to step in, these more progressive uh, northeast states, New York, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, et cetera, New Jersey. I can't leave anybody out or I'll get beat up by, by those governors, Maryland, Connecticut, all of them. They saw the price becoming more and more competitive, and, and so they – 
kicked off these procurement processes. And now the Biden administration likewise saw the benefits of clean energy at, at what everybody believed would become a competitive price. The challenge, of course, is that we did start a little bit higher because we're starting from behind. We don't have the supply chain. We don't have the workers. But folks thought that the price would come down, and it was coming down. But then we had these big uh, macroeconomic challenges over the last 18 months with much higher interest rates, much higher input costs, you know, a lot of demand for these very bespoke vessels that install these massive turbines offshore. The supply chain hasn't caught up with that demand. Then these vessel operators can charge you know, whatever they want, basically, to build to build a project. And so, so unfortunately, that more recently, you've seen quite a few challenges with some of the, the projects where people bid before these macroeconomic challenges of COVID and U- Ukraine war, and now the math doesn't work anymore. Those are the headwinds. That's some of the challenge. And to be honest, we had to take those headwinds into consideration when we put our latest bid in into Rhode Island. And so the price was higher. We think it's a competitive price, but it was probably by absolute standards higher. We're hopeful, though, that all this vision that everybody had about building a supply chain, training workers, and getting the economies of scale and getting this industry started will eventually get us back on that levelized cost of energy reduction path. And we're hopeful also that, you know, things like the infrastructure bill, the IRA, can help incentivize the industry to get started. I still feel really positive about the industry, but we definitely have some bumpy, bumpy times right now. So, Do you think that there is recourse for Revolution 2? Is there a way that that project could be revived, do you think? I think we're exploring all of, all of our options right now. There are some sp- procedural steps. Rhode Island Energy has to make a recommendation to the PUC. We can comment. So we'll see. We'll see, we'll see where it goes. Everyone recently, especially, is talking about climate change. The Paris Agreement basically anticipates by 2030 reducing greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent versus 2005 levels. What is the role specifically of offshore wind that gets us to those uh, targets? Yeah, maybe a little context first. So we are building onshore solar projects, onshore wind projects. We're actually building a solar plus storage project in Arizona that's the second largest commercial scale battery in the world. We have a green green fuels business as well, where we're building you know green methanol f- to power ships and other things. I think all of that stuff is important. That's why I brought it up. So we need all of it in order to achieve these these climate goals. But offshore wind is particularly interesting. If you look at our demographics of our country, you've got highly densely populated cities along both coasts, and even this even the Gulf Coast is fairly highly populated. And so you can build a bunch of solar out in Arizona or wind in Kansas, but there's not as many users of that power um, in certain parts of the country. And so then you would have to have massive, expensive transmission lines with lots of losses to get the power out. But with offshore wind, you can build the generating asset close to the load. And we have actually some fundamental things uh, that make offshore wind attractive, especially in the northeast and mid-Atlantic part of the U.S. We have relatively shallow waters pretty far offshore. So you create a lot of seabed that you can build offshore wind on. And we have high wind speeds and power generation is a cubed function of wind speed. So if you double the wind speed, you eight times the power generation. And so when you have high wind speeds, you can have pretty efficient power generation. And so offshore wind becomes a critical tool in the tool belt for America to achieve its climate ambitions. And especially for these Eastern seaboard cities in the near term and eventually on the West, you know, California, high high population density, offshore wind will be important for them as well. 
So obviously people, commercial fishing interests have raised concerns about it. Shoreline property owners have raised concerns about it. How do you counter people's concerns about it? What's what's the message to primarily the commercial fishermen who, who worry about how it's going to affect their way of life? Yeah, I mean, one of the big challenges we have is just generic fear of the unknown and disinformation and sometimes funding by people who want to keep the status quo, oil and gas companies, for example, we're really committed to coexistence. We have a large, what we call a marine affairs organization in-house where we're talking to the fishing community and other marine ocean users. We've had literally hundreds and hundreds of meetings. We've set up funds to help compensate for gear loss. We have a one nautical mile by one nautical mile layout so that fishing entities and others can navigate through the wind farms. And we're really trying to, to help the fishermen understand that this isn't going to completely change their way of life. Visual impact's a little harder because it's kind of eyes in the beauty of the, of the beholder. I spent last week, I was in the UK. I flew into the Hornsey 2 project off the east coast of the UK. It's the largest wind farm in the world. And I saw literally hundreds of wind turbines out there. And I sometimes wish I could take these people with me because to me, it was amazing to see. And it wasn't a negative view shed from from my perspective. But the truth is that these projects are are pretty far offshore. You're not going to see them most of the time. On any hazy day like today, you won't see them at all. And even on a clear day, they're going to be an inch or two tall on the horizon, pretty far offshore. So it's not, they're not like big, giant, looming wind turbines that are sitting right at, you know, 100 yards off your beach or something. Last question is always, what do you see as the future and what's your greatest hope for the long-term future of offshore wind? Look, I'm doing this job because I believe in, in what we're trying to do, but I also get quite motivated to see the job creations. In our union agreements, we have high standards for bringing in uh, women and, and people of diverse backgrounds. And so it's a pretty unique role to create something good for the for the world and help us you know transition to the next next phase of the energy transition but also to change people's lives actually and for me the future is a lot of offshore wind a domestic supply chain trained workforce and just a real significant difference in in the way we generate power along the east coast of of the u.s in the next 10 15 years so thank you david for joining us thanks very much thank you Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Brian Amaral, and we'll be back next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.